Hello, I'm Jason Black and I'd like to welcome you back to the Beers for Bacon show. For the next half an hour, I plan on keeping you glued to my show with tales of wisdom and other wonderful food stories, including one about me in a pig smoking pit that nearly brought down a whole building. JC Viennes is another wine yarn. This time he'll be chatting to us from Burgundy. And I've got Chef Jack Carson, Hong Kong's only Ragin' Cajun, doing my gadget test. Because I'm up to the letter G in our alphabet soup, I thought I'd go all out New Orleans today. So I'll be sharing a recipe for gumbo, a dish that's good to cook before it gets too hot. Today I'll even be reviewing a book on the once lost recipes of Louisiana. Music plays an important part in the food and beverage world, both in the kitchen and, of course, in the restaurant itself. Today, Vinnie Laurie is back chatting about the beets in the back of the house. That is beets, of course, with an A and not beetroots. All of that and some more after a South Stand pour of wine with J.C. Viennes. Hello, Jason. This week I'm in Burgundy. I'm here because I'm here for a very special event. It's called Les Grands Jours de Bourgogne. And it's special because, first of all, it happens every second year. And second of all, because the way they are structured, this is a one week long event. And the way they are structured is that they um, organize tastings in different sub-regions of uh, the appellation of Burgundy. For example, on Monday we were in Chablis. Uh, if you remember, Chablis is a very famous white wine. And on Tuesday we were in Côte de Nuit. And this is where the very, very famous red wine of Domaine de la Romanie Conti comes from. And today, Friday, the last day, we were in Volnay. For me, Volnay is wonderful because they produce beautiful, tender, delicate, perfume, red Pinot Noir that I absolutely love. Now, uh, you can hear some background noise because I'm in a restaurant. And this restaurant is very famous in Bonne. Uh, Bonn is the center of wine, uh, the capital of Burgundy, if you will. Um, and the restaurant is called Le Bistro de l'Hôtel de Bonn. Why do I love it here? Because, very simply, uh, this restaurant is 1,000% what I expect a French bistro to be. The atmosphere, the food, it's wonderful. Oh, my asparagus are coming here. I'm having some, uh, some green asparagus now from a producer in the, the southern part of, uh, of, of France called the Rhone Valley. Uh, I'm having this uh, with butter. Beautiful, beautiful looking. The smell is wonderful. And I'm having this here with a glass of champagne. And so, bon appétit. While I'm waiting for my meat, let me tell you about my experience this week. Believe it or not, Jason, Tasting wine every day like this is hard work. Every day we were meeting about 50 to 60 different producers and each of them have about four to five wines to taste. So the key to make sense of each day, in fact, is to take careful notes. And to do that, we need to really concentrate on the wines. We really need to extract from our tasting the essence of the wine. Uh, how is one wine different than the other is one way, but we need to discuss also the personality of the wine. Is the wine fruity? Is the wine sapo? Is the wine uh, grippy? Is the wine acid? Is the wine tannic? 
So all of these things need to be recorded. Therefore, we taste the wine, we spit the wine, of course, we cannot uh, keep the wine in our mouth and swallow everything. It's impossible, otherwise I would not be walking straight at the end of the day, that's absolutely for sure. And so, doing this kind of work day after day for one week, believe me, is very, very tiring. Mamma mia, Jason, you should see this piece of meat that just arrived in front of me. This is huge, this thing. It's at least two ends in front of me. Nice, nice, juicy, and as the French call it, bleu, lovely. So while I'm at it, let me tell you about my favorite event this week. It was called Le Salon des Jeunes Talents. This was a space dedicated to young winemakers, full of ambition, full of potential. These young people, they either started on their own a few years ago, or some of them actually took over from their aging parents. And so these guys, they are generally well-educated and also well-traveled. And most of them actually went abroad for some work experience, maybe in Australia, maybe in California. And so you can imagine that they have a worldview of things, they have a worldview of winemaking, and they are looking to um, make wines that actually have an appeal beyond Burgundy, beyond France, uh, an appeal that will uh, be liked by people in Asia, people in America. And so the wines are actually uh, quite modern, quite modern in this time, and very lovely. So, how did I find this wine? Very simple. I actually worked with the sommelier. As soon as I reached the restaurant, I took my seat, and he came over with the wine list, and straight away I told him, look, uh, here's how much I want to pay, and here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this taste, I'm looking for this emotion, and uh, please give me a suggestion. And so the sommelier started to ask me a few questions, and we chit-chatted about my preferences and uh, uh, the different producers that I liked in the past. And straight away he says, okay, look for your budget, and for what you're looking for, I really suggest you try this producer. And so I trusted him, I let him choose for me, and what happened is that uh, he opened this bottle, and it's absolutely lip-smacking, and everything I wanted. I just ordered a glass of Alsace-Gewitztraminer, which I expect will be full of rose perfume and spices. But please, Jason, don't tell my wife, Maria, because she wants me to keep fit on this trip. Until next week. Ciao. Once again, that was J.C. Vienzo be joining us next week from Italy. If necessity is the mother of invention, I'd like to suggest that the person who invented today's gadget has needs far greater than he realizes. I can't get my head around the idea that the inventor stood in a kitchen, tearing the leaves off a stalk of basil or whatever herb was doing his head in, and thought, hey, let me invent something that would make this easier. Well, rather than go for therapy and happy pills, this person, photographed on the back of the gadget with the title Famous Inventor, went ahead and created the Herb Stripper. Of course, being savvy, he also did a search on the latest trends. Naturally, it's great for stripping kale. Had he invented it 10 years ago, no doubt he would have put that it's the best thing for Rocket. That being said, 
Let's head over to the drunken duck kitchen and get Chef Jack Carson to test it. We'll let him decide if everyone should leaf this one well alone. Thank you, Jason, for bringing this nifty little leaf-shaped tool that kind of resembles a green prison shank. Um, it's for stripping leaves. Generally, if you can imagine a, a leaf that's been sharpened on one end, made out of hard plastic, and it has a bunch of holes in it. Um, uh, I've been in kitchens for quite a while now, and started as a dishwasher, prep cook, came all the way up to chef, and I've never seen a tool like this. Uh, generally, I would not use a gadget, but, you know, let's give it a shot. Um, it resembles, like I said, a prison shank shaped as a leaf. But, uh, yeah, let's give it a go. Um, apparently, you put the stem in one of the holes and then pull it through. Let's see. We've got some nice summertime, which is, uh, the, well, we've got summertime, which is basically time that has thin stalks because it's a uh, it hasn't been cold so they're not like really really hard and of course we have dill and then your basic rosemary and of course kale because every kitchen now should have kale uh, or just the marketing genius that put it on uh, the box that it came in I guess yeah let's give it a go we have first up is the time uh, I'm gonna try and see if I can get it through one of the smallest holes which is, I mean, the holes do vary in size. One of them's like a pinhole, and the other one's kind of big. But uh, let's see if it works. Well, it's jammed in there for sure. It doesn't not work. It just takes a little bit more time than it would if I were to just to use my hands. But you have to find the, the exact right hole. <laughs> but uh, with time, I would say it does okay, but it would cost me more time to, to use the gadget than to just use my hands, but again, here we go, stripping it through. I mean, it's really good for making stalks. I don't know about the end product of the herbs, but uh, yeah. Next up, let's do some dill. Again, it doesn't not work. It just takes a lot more time than I would normally do it. Next up, let's do kale, of course. <laughs> uh, I don't know why you'd need to use this, but it seems to kind of work, but again, I don't see why you'd need it. Uh, this is just chopping the kale in half now. Basically, it's a lettuce knife that's a prison shank. As far as functionality, saving time, I guess, it would be a 2 out of 10, but as the job that it does, I give it a 4 out of 10, just because it does take the things off. It just takes longer to actually put it in the hole. Chef Jack Carson, he'll be back a little bit later on with his recipe for a basic that should be made, not bought, of course, Creole mustard. Now, I started my cooking career in South Africa under a self-taught chef called Bob Squire. Together with his wife, Monique, they owned a highly regarded restaurant called Seasons. In fact, it was one of the top restaurants in the country, so it was a win for me that it was in my hometown of Hillcrest. Bob loved the cooking of Switzerland's Freddy Giraudet, and equally as much, the food of Louisiana. Like all great chefs, he cooked for the love of it, and it showed in every plate he served. Sharing his love for Cajun and Creole cuisine, I eventually headed off to New Orleans in 1995 and worked there for a year, 
a decade before Hurricane Katrina devastated the city. Today I thought we'd take a look at a great cookbook called Cooking Up a Storm. It's a collaborative effort by the team at the Times-Picayune, New Orleans' daily newspaper. It is, in their own words, a compendium of the very best of New Orleans cuisine, a book that tells the story, recipe by recipe, of one of the greatest cities in the world. Now, if you've ever been to New Orleans, you'll know that that's no exaggeration. As again, the authors say, food is culture, food is family, food is comfort, and food is life. The recipes in Cooking Up a Storm capture the cuisine of the city. They are recipes that were recalled from relatives, then submitted, shared, and exchanged with those who'd lost their own recipe books in the storm. The book also contains recipes from the city's restaurateurs and from the archives of the newspaper itself, collated by that same dedicated editorial food team that was back on the beat some eight weeks after the city was devastated. Laid out in typical cookbook fashion with cocktails, then appetizers, soups, salads, proteins and sides, and of course desserts, the book is text-heavy, so don't you all be relying on pretty pictures to inspire you to cook the recipes. Trust rather the history of the dish, or the family significance, or even the reputation of the restaurant it came from to steer you to southern bliss. Finding recipe books on Cajun Creole cuisine in Hong Kong is unfortunately tougher than you'd think. So for this book, you'll have to order it online. Get yourself a copy. Make yourself a cup of Café du Monde's Café au lait. Sit back, relax and read. Of course, have a pen and paper ready. You'll be wanting to plan your own Cajun and Creole feast from the book. I mentioned that I worked in New Orleans in 1995. Now, I was at a great restaurant called Alex Patou's. On the fourth floor, we had a balcony, and uh, we had a smoke pit, which we used for doing cochon du lait. Now, one day, um, because somebody hadn't cleaned out the smoke pit, and it wasn't me, it caught on fire. There was mayhem. The sprinklers went off, and all of a sudden, there were these huge, burly, much less than polite firemen heaving and hoeing around looking for someone to get grumpy with. Now, I've probably got one of those guilty faces. So I was asked about the illegal smoke pit and I laid on my South African accent on really thick and I did the classic chef shrug. Needless to say, it ended well, but the cochon du lait was off the menu forever. Alex Patou was always in the restaurant and I'll never forget my first few days working in his kitchen. He taught me how to cook a roux and using these very large rondelles, they held gallons and gallons of oil. He always said, you only add the flour just before the oil is about to explode. Really scary stuff, but it keeps you on your toes. A great recipe from that restaurant was a chicken and sausage gumbo made, of course, with a dark roux. Now, there's a saying in Louisiana that a normal family will feed four people with a chicken and a Cajun family will feed ten. Gumbo and many similar dishes were a brilliant way that families extended food. Like many New Orleans dishes, it starts with a roux cooked to dark and then the addition of the holy trinity of celery, bell peppers and onions. Smoked sausage, typically andouille or any other spicy kind of sausage, is added with a really strong chicken stock. It's all allowed to simmer with little pieces of chicken. 
often filet is used to add to thicken the gumbo, but for me it's an acquired taste and one that I actually never got used to. Um, to serve, gumbos often come with white rice and a garnish of chopped scallions and loads and loads of Tabasco, which strangely enough is from the Mickleheny family just up the road in New Iberia. Check out the Beers for Bacon Facebook page for a great gumbo recipe. Over the last few shows, we've shared recipes of condiments and sauces that should be made at home. I believe one of these is mustard. In New Orleans, they have a version called Creole mustard. Let's get native New Orleans chef Jack Carson to share his own version. Mustard is grown extensively in Louisiana, especially in large-leaved and curled. Like, there's different varieties. Um, the seed is black, and then it's raised, um, just cultivated just for the mustard, obviously. I mean, you can do mustard greens, and then, but when we make Creole mustard, it's a major base of our remoulade sauce, which is a spicy, almost mayo, tomato mayo-looking sauce with horseradish. But it's the base of all of our dressings. It's a great emulsifier, and it uh, is known to have some properties for uh, preserving. With that being said, uh, you can make your own Creole mustard. It's quite simple. Um, obviously, a lot of mustard seeds, and you can grind them. Generally, they're done mechanically in between two large stones, and there's oil that's in there that generally uses itself as a binder. Uh, but you can add vinegar to it and some more oil and really agitate it. And basically that makes it a spicy, um, acidic, uh, very, very pungent mustard. And that's basically where Creole mustard comes from. Uh, we use it in everything. Uh, I love it on chicken. <laughs> a recipe that I find is really, really nice is a half a cup of distilled white vinegar, one half teaspoon of crushed red pepper, uh, two cloves of garlic chopped up, half cup brown mustard seeds that are crushed, or you can crush them when you're doing the recipe, one tablespoon of freshly grated horseradish, cayenne, allspice, a uh, teaspoon of salt, teaspoon of sugar, and a teaspoon of Steen's cane syrup, or if you're not in Louisiana, you would use molasses, and uh, four tablespoons of mustard powder that's basically used as a binder and uh, just a small canning jar to put all of it in. And uh, it does stay good for eons. You want to let it pretty much uh, almost marinated in its own thing and really become, I would say, two weeks at least. Yeah, I would, I would hold on to it for two weeks before it really hits mature levels of intensity. That was Chef Jack Carson. Once again, all of our recipes from today's show will be on our Facebook page, Beers for Bacon on RTHK3. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about music in restaurant kitchens. So it's a big welcome back to Chef Vinnie Lauria. 
Hi, Vinny. Thanks for coming back. I was reminded uh, the other day, actually, um, with one of the guys from Earth, Wind & Fire passing away. He was uh, instrumental for me in a, a song called September, which I used to listen to every single day when I went to work in a bakery in Paris. For me, it got me in probably the best mood that I could possibly be because that kitchen was, was strange to me and that while I was there, there was absolutely no talking. All we did was take instruction. How does that differ from the way you run your operations? Well, first of all, I think that uh, one very important thing that we all we all kind of do is we have a routine. We're As chefs, we're all creatures of habit and routine is very important for us. Mm. Uh, so the fact that you listen to the same song every morning, it's often what I do. I you know, get up, get ready for work, listen to the same tunes, get in the right state of mind, and start my day. Certainly um, it puts people in a good mood, that's for sure. Exactly. But at the same time, I do agree with, I think there's definitely a place in a kitchen for silence and uh, for time of concentration. And and in a way, it it really is respect for the sanctity of what a kitchen is. I think if we have a look at the way that people communicate in kitchens, it's often not actually by talking to each other. We've got our own language. We um, have this sort of body language that goes on, and it's, everybody it's has this dance. Yeah, they have this dance around each other, um, all following a tune, be it of, of the orders as they come in. Um, but I, I do think that music in a kitchen is really something cool. It gets people into a really good mood, be that if they listen to the radio or music that people have decided to play. What do, what do you generally play? And do you play different music during the morning and the evening? We play a lot of different stuff in, in the kitchens. In a high-volume kitchen where you're turning over meals quite quickly, do you find that you need sort of high-paced music? Again, there's different different times for different uh, or different musics and different moods for different times. Uh, when we're prepping, we're kind of getting in the groove. I really like playing some funk, some soul, some stuff that we can all kind of groove to. Even a little reggae to keep us, you know, all all kind of up. Um, and then when it's getting a little heated up, when we're starting firing on all cylinders, then we're listening to stuff like hip hop. And the guys all know in my kitchens that when I say, "All right, no talking, no music," the music goes off. Nobody talks. It's and about we jam the service. fan. <laughs> and we, and we jam it. So during service, you play you play tracks. It depends. It depends. If we're gonna be playing music during service, if we're doing like it depends. If it's something with some finesse to it, I like playing some soul. I like playing something with a groove to it. Um, if we're just rocking or we're jamming, like it's just uh, and I say jamming figuratively. Uh, we don't. We're not literally jamming. Uh, when we're when we're jamming though, we're often listening to hip hop. And uh, all kind of hype into it. And, you know, the dance literally becomes a dance sometimes, as probably some people have seen on my Instagram and, and Facebook and stuff. And is this something that you've brought from kitchens in New York, or is this something that you've just instilled in your teams here? It's just an important part. I mean, music's an important part of my life, an important part of, uh, I feel like, my creative process. And, and I want us all to be on the same page. All of it's, it's really, at the end of the day, a family. We're spending a lot of time together. We we all kind of have to be in the same state of mind in the same uh, in the same groove. And if they don't like the music that you like, we I try to compromise a little bit. I try to play a little bit of, of what the guys and girls like. <laughs> it's going to well. be quite tough but in Hong Kong, if, yeah, because kitchens are made up with people from all places. But it's good to like you know be ex expose yourself to something a little bit different and really kind of understand it. Even though often I'll be like, all right, what is this? What are we listening to? I'm turning it off. Let's go. We need to listen to it. And, and do you think the team can sense your mood by the tracks that you're playing? And they go, oh, God, he's put that on. Things are going to get rough. Um, I generally will not um, will not 
like allow that allow it to affect affect me in a negative way i'll keep it pretty pretty light and keep pretty fun and often i'm talking so no about heavy metal i'm no heavy metal for me it's not, a lot of chefs like that because absolutely like, chefs were adrenaline junkies too and like chefs like a lot of chefs are like all hardcore heavy metal all the time all right if we can go from sort of the hardest kind of music to absolute silence in the kitchen what would be going on if the kitchen was completely quiet honestly it's usually the busiest times uh, the, 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 the push, the middle of the, the middle of, uh, the, the weeds as we call them. Um, what is going on is there's the natural rhythm of the kitchen. Okay. You're listening to, you're listening to your, your meat cook on the grill. You're listening to your pan sizzle. You're using all your senses to feel what's going on around you as well as you're listening to the natural rhythm of tickets coming in, the orders being called, uh, food being sent out. All that stuff is a natural rhythm in, again, what we call the dance. You know, it's like uh, the na- cooking on the line is you're moving, you have this flow, and you're flowing with the guys around you. And there's almost a uh, conductor is the, the head chef or the executive chef that's running the show and expediting. You know what, Vinny? At the end of the day, does good music in the kitchen make us better chefs? Absolutely. I think being into – I think, first of all, there's a lot that you can learn from other mediums of art. Um, as a chef – and as a musician uh, from a chef and as an oil painter to a chef or a musician, it, I think there is a lot that you can really learn. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot about that. I actually dabble. I should just say I dabble so I don't embarrass myself at any point. But I, I, I was speaking to my piano teacher earlier. And the reason why I play a little bit of piano is because it's another, it's another medium, another form that I can, you know, express myself creatively and really have another outlet and uh more than anything i can learn from it what we were talking about is that when you're a chef and when you're an artist a jazz musician playing a solo often you find a musician you know a young musician that's really got a lot of fervor and really um anxious and aggressive that has some serious chops they'll get a little bit busy and they'll start playing a little bit faster and some really technical stuff and it's all about the 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 technique and you forget about the feeling and the soul and the groove behind it. Thanks, Vinny. Look forward to catching up with you in a few weeks' time. G marks the spot for our alphabet soup today. And because we're all about great in New Orleans, let's kick off with G for griards, medallions of meat that are pounded before being fried. These flattened morsels of meaty goodness are traditionally served with another southern G, grits, a dish of slow-cooked maize. G is also for gratin, that technique for glazing a dish under a hot grill, especially like another New Orleans dish, Oysters Rockefeller. G is for giblets, the viscera of a bird that makes for great gravy. Ending with the tip of our cap to our musical chef Vinnie Lauria, G is for Kenny, the go-to guy for kitchen ambience since never. It's time to take the show over the try line, so to speak, and lay your head over to the sevens. I'm in South Africa for a few days next week, but I'll be back next Saturday with a show that's all about the barbecue. Or as we say in that part of the world, the braai. I've wrangled us a butcher to give us his recipes for bultong, burevos, and other typical barbecue fare, as well as a Cape Malay baburti. As always, the swami of the wine story, J.C. Viennes, will be back this time from a wine judging competition in Italy. Until then, this is me, Jason Black, wishing you tot scenes and bye-bye for now. <laughs>